0: This is New Books in Middle Eastern Studies. I'm Banab Shemad Najad. My guest, Carlotta Gall, was a lead reporter on the New York Times team that won a Pulitzer Prize for reporting from Afghanistan and Pakistan in 2009. Her new book, the culmination of 12 years of reporting in the field, is called The Wrong Enemy, America and Afghanistan, 2001 to 2014. In the book, she claims that the Pakistani government, the so-called biggest regional ally of the West in the war against terror, was in fact misleading the West in aiding, controlling, and using jihadi groups like the Taliban and al-Qaeda for its own purposes. She suggests that the ISI, Pakistan's intelligence service, may have known that Osama bin Laden was hiding in the country and had provided protection to him and his family. Carlotta Gall, welcome to New Books in Middle Eastern Studies. Thank you for having me. I'm wondering if we could begin, um, if you could begin by saying a few words about yourself. Um, how, I'm, I'm just really curious how did you get interested specifically in Afghanistan and Pakistan? And as I'm, you're in Tunisia right now, so I, I, I might even say Middle Eastern politics in general.
1: I think it it started in a combination of ways. I was actually a student of Russia, and I I read Russian at university and and French, and um, I went to the Soviet Union as a student in the 80s. And it was just when Russia had invaded Afghanistan, and that was one of the big topics of the time. And um, amazingly, I very early on, I met, I ran into some soldiers as a student in a bar um, who'd just come back from Afghanistan, and they told some hair-raising stories. And it was, of course, still the Soviet Union, and that was, um, so it was a fascinating insight. At the same time that I was there, my own father, who's a British journalist, television journalist, um, was actually in Afghanistan with the Mujahideen, and he was gone for several months. In those days, there were no sat We didn't hear from him. And I knew he was in the mountains there, trying to get the story of what was going on, because it was very much a closed war. It was hidden. It was very access was very difficult. And so I was intrigued. You can imagine, as a student, to see both sides. And from then on, I was fascinated. It became, you know, Afghanistan became Russia's Vietnam, if you like. They had terrible casualties, they did terrible atrocities, it was just a quagmire that drew them in for 10 years, and then they had to fight to sort of get rid of and get out of. um, And I really do believe, having studied Russia, it it then helped precipitate the end of communism. It was such uh, an important event in the late Soviet history. And And then to see it from the other side, through my father and then later myself, to see all these refugees. It was the biggest refugee problem of the time. Um, You know, a third of the population left. It's the same number, of, incidentally, of Syrian refugees. Now three million um, left Afghanistan. No, sorry, five million left Afghanistan. Um, That was a third of the population fled the country. So it was a huge issue. Afghans started arriving in England. They came to our home. And then later I went to to Pakistan and saw many of the refugees and then later got to go into Afghanistan. And so I was fascinated. Um, But also the Afghan people and the Pakistanis who hosted them were so engaging. And that immediately drew me in. They're they're hospitable, noble, generous people. And then they were getting caught up in the most horrific events which then changed the history of the world. And so, you know, I then later became a journalist, and who could not be drawn to this country? Um, and so, of course, when I knew it quite well by the time of nine eleven, you know, I put my hand up to my editors and said, hey, I know this place, I've been there, I know all of the players. Um, they didn't realize at first quite my connection, but when, uh, when I did go there, it... it uh, I just, I just knew so much already, um, that I, I actually, you know, came to, to the reporting very easily and did quite well. And then they asked me to stay. And I stayed and stayed because I was so intrigued by the country, the people, and, and, you know, this, this incredible long war that's eaten up that country and that area. Um, and then to see America get involved in, in a similar long projected war as, uh, As Russia had been in, you know,
0: I I was, I was hooked. You know, I've, I've, I was in Iran, in fact I was in Abadan, the city where the Iran-Iraq war started, and I was a kid, I was just nine years old, and I've always been fascinated about the effects, the long-term effects that war has on a population, and, I mean, I didn't really, the the war, the Iran-Iraq war that I experienced Maybe the first month was pretty intense, but after that we went to, to Tehran and it was pretty low key uh, for the most part. Um, I can't imagine being, um, an Afghan, um, in Kabul, for instance, and, uh, having lived through the 1980s and the 1990s, and the 2000s. And since you've been on the ground or you were on the ground for as long as you were, living with the afghans how would you describe the long-term effects i mean i I understand i'm asking a very general question but Mm. um and i'm I'm sure that it's different from person to person or sort of class to class and could you say something
1: but it's the whole it's the whole nation and that's what's so incredible and it's it's so many generations now because they, they all get married quite young they have children and so you've already got um, the third generation as it were that's been constantly at war that's lost people and so um, you know some of the some of the kids that that come and work with us either as interns or trainee journalists we have had a bureau now for, with the New York Times uh, since since 2001 and so we've we've trained up a lot of young journalists translators who've gone on and and when you hear their stories sometimes they're very young and they don't know so much but when they start to delve into their own history sometimes they start to go back and interview their grandparents and it's just unbelievable the layers that that are revealed um and that their fathers come out with and so you'll you'll have um you'll have generations where you know the grandparents disappeared under the communists and then the father was, um, you know, tortured under the Russians or disappeared, in, you know, as a Mujahid, lost. And, um, and then you have the next generation of uh, often then women suffering under the Taliban, trapped in their homes or, or teaching secretly. Um, and then now you've got this generation of the 10 years that I was there. Um, suffering, you know, threats from the Taliban, trying to get educated, trying to get jobs, um, having to flee their home. So it's just unbelievable to to see the generations have lived through this and how they all protect each other or or advise each other. It's just heartbreaking. Um, but, of course, what it does is it, it's really created a very, very nervous nation, I think. They, they all live for the short term. They all... They're, they're very clever. In fact, they've learned how to survive. They they sit on the fence. They avoid politics. Um, in in many ways, they they manage to make friends and networks on both sides of every conflict to protect their families. So, it's um, it's it's fascinating to, to actually see how a nation survives through it or from experience. And
0: and it's heartbreaking. Is I wonder if it's even apt to talk about something like ethics in a situation like this.
1: I, I think it, I think it is because I think there are some over the years who have behaved despite that the horrors have behaved so honorably and, and correctly and tried to raise their families and so you meet everyday people like that and it's so impressive and they're so brave that so so you never fail to be impressed every interview you do you know you see some terrible horrors and there's you know we all know that there's some very unattractive things about Afghan society. You know, the this, this situation of women and children and so on is is appalling. And 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 then what the outsiders have all done to the country. Um, but but you meet almost every day someone who just impresses you by their simplicity mm-hmm. or their honorability and so um, and their their dignity in in poverty or in, in difficult circumstances. So it, 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 ethics. Definitely remains there. And um, what, what of course is impressive about Afghanistan is it's a deeply religious country, and and people actually live by their beliefs, which which is really impressive to see.
0: It becomes pretty clear uh, from the very first few pages of the book that reporting in this region, the Afghanistan-Pakistan region, was at times a serious threat to your life. I also read you wrote something in the New York Times yourself that you recently lost a close female journalist friend, and found out that another one was seriously injured in Afghanistan. This is while I think you were touring in the uh, in in the West uh, for your book. What is it like? What is it like being a reporter, more specifically a female reporter, in such a uh, dangerous, hostile environment? I mean, this is. Uh, war I, you're a war reporter, I realize that, but um I guess when i when I think of day in day out i i have there there's almost uh, for for us normal folks <laughs> um it's it's really hard to imagine how losing friends and you talk about that in your book to losing friends and coworkers year after year, um, day after day, sort of being on the ground, what does it take for someone to be able to sort of push through that, not become a ball of anxiety, depression, sort of? How do you maintain your calm, your your (laughs) sort of center, your power? How do you stay grounded? How do you keep working?
1: Well, I think that's the key, actually. You keep working. Um, I think I've been lucky in that I'm. I, I learned early on, and it was actually when I was reporting in Russia, in in Chechnya, when I first started doing war reporting, um, full full sort of full on, that I ca- could actually do it. That I um, that I was not easily panicked. That I could keep pretty centered to the job. That I could, you know, the main thing about war reporting is you could get the story find out what's going on and get back and file it send you know write it and send it to your office and I managed to do that and I found I could actually operate in foreign countries in foreign strange places uh, more or less uh, efficiently and so um, and so then of course what happens is you you know everyone talks about journalistic objectivity but actually you get terribly involved because you see See the injustice, you see the horrors, and you want to report it. And it doesn't mean you take sides, but you desperately want people to know what's happening and to get the truth out. And you know, all, all journalists learn that one of the first casualties of war is is the truth, is objective facts. And so it became terribly important in every conflict I've been in to to relay what's happening, so that other people know, so that uh, politicians can make well-informed decisions. The public can decide, you know, for themselves what what, uh, what should be happening. And so um, that's your driving force. And that's, um, you know, along with a lot of adrenaline because it is dangerous and, and you're always in a rush because you're trying to work and get the story and get it back. And there's always, you know, lots of obstacles. Um, so you, you actually just remain focused on that. And that, of course, helps you, manage the horror that you're watching because you've got a job to do and and without a job you would be standing there crying but actually because you've got a job to do you you go and do it um i think in the long time it, term it, it really wears you down um and so you have to you know recognize that and take time off or or um, find ways to to alleviate um that um, but I think, really, you, because you believe so much in the job, and I think every foreign correspondent and every war reporter really does, um, that's why you do it, and that's why you keep going back. And, of course, you, you want you want to help the people who you're, you're witnessing um, and get their story out. And, I, and as I say in the book, certainly I wanted to be a voice for the Afghans because I was well aware that they are um, a, a pretty beleaguered, poor nation that not many people do listen to. And um, certainly the Afghan civilians in the conflict and the villages out in, in very remote areas uh, weren't being heard. So I, I really wanted to record their experience and, and their voice.
0: Did you get a chance to come across or, or have conversations with American soldiers or uh, NATO soldiers were you ever at all interested or did you think that that was sort of taking away from what your focus would be? Would you, were you ever interested in telling their stories and sort of bringing um, them into the picture?
1: Yes, and I think, I mean, one of the things about the war is it became so dangerous um, because of the Al-Qaeda element the Taliban, Taliban's hostility to foreign journalists, it was very difficult to report in whole areas of Afghanistan after a certain time, freely in the countryside. So in anywhere south of Kabul, after the, the first five years, you could only travel with the military, the American military, or with NATO. Um, and then you would have to go on an embed, you would be um, attached to an army unit, and, you go with the troops. and so of course we lived and ate and slept with them, and that meant you were in very close proximity and you, you saw their side of the war. I didn't perhaps put a great deal of that into the book because I felt I wanted to tell a story that I thought was being ignored and and not heard. And I think the military have you know their ways of getting their story out? Um, and of course, we've seen a lot of very good accounts by former soldiers and, and generals as well of the war. So um, my feeling was... To write what was less known especially the Afghan point of view but also you know this whole undercover current that goes through the book which is the Pakistani element in, in the whole story and and I wanted to uncover that and, and show that and that that really hasn't I think a lot of people have alluded to it, a lot of people have mentioned it but I really wanted to unpeel that so, so that was what the task of the book was. I, I don't mean to to uh, ignore the American experience, because, of course, um, that's that's going to fill generations of, of, of books and, and research papers, because it was, in the end, the longest American war to date. Um, and so I think that, you know, that's very relevant. So I, I cover, I show a couple of cases, you know, a couple of stories here and there of things I came across, but I regret There's perhaps not more, but, you know, there's a limit of space. So
0: perhaps that's for a later book. Yes. (laughs) I can't wait. Getting into the meat of um, the book, I guess the first question that comes to mind is, how did you first start suspecting that Pakistan was in fact, at least to some extent, protecting the Taliban and Al-Qaeda? So what were the first clues for you?
1: I think I knew... Um, a lot of the history already, so I knew the story of the rise of the Taliban in the nineties because I, I'd been interested. I'd been to Afghanistan before, um, so I knew the level of involvement. Um, and actually, from the beginning, I remember trying to, you know, trying to unpick some of the things that I witnessed—the the the, um, the flights that evacuated a lot of the Pakistanis at, at the Right at the time of of the first, you know, the first months of the American operation, a lot of Pakistanis got caught in the north of of Afghanistan. And then we were hearing they were being evacuated by secret flights. I came across a lot of Pakistani prisoners and interviewed some of them up there in the north. And so already that was intriguing and, and tantalizing because you couldn't quite get enough. You couldn't quite put your finger on it. Um, then there were Pakistanis who ended up in Guantanamo we couldn't interview those but you you tried to unpick those sort of stories um, but it really I think came to gel when I went to Quetta in Pakistan in 2003 and that was because I started hearing the Taliban were there you could you could see them you could interview them perhaps um, they were milling around in the bazaars more and more frequently. So I traveled there with, with a local um, translator and reporter. And, of course, we and with some Afghans who helped me find them. And they said, yeah, we'll take you along. So they take me to this, you know, main intersection in Quetta. And they kind of, they're nervous. They know they've got to hide me a bit because I'm a foreign journalist. And so I'm in a in the back of a minivan with curtains around, a bit like a woman goes in Perda, um, but then they brought these Taliban figures over to me, who sort of chatted through the window, and and it was fascinating, because the Taliban were all milling there, and it looked just like Afghanistan under the Taliban, when they were all freely moving around in their big black turbans, and, you know, they, they have a certain attitude and a certain style of clothing, and, and it just looked the same as they always were, and um, that was that was fascinating to see them. And then, in fact, they were quickly told to stop talking to me and we were told to move on, which again was an indication of are people in charge here that they're sort of politically controlling this group. Um, So then, you know, I became more and more intrigued. So I followed up We managed to get more interviews in in houses. and, And and I started to piece together what they were up to. And it was it was fascinating because they were sort of in hiding, but they were starting an insurgency. And, and then I, I followed it from there. And I was one of the lucky ones who, who remained in Afghanistan throughout. So I could track over the years the steady growth of the movement, the resurgence of the Taliban, and, you know, piecemeal daily stories, were, were perhaps not very significant because the war in Iraq by then was starting, and that's where the world attention was. But when when I you know accumulated all that over the years, I realized this 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 was undeniable and and terribly important because it was so damaging the 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 build up of this resurgence and the support they got from Pakistan. Um, and it became to be a terribly dangerous movement again, um, and so I plotted all that, and then I absolutely felt I had to put it all in a book.
0: You paint a very accessible picture of the relationship between the Taliban and I guess the Talibani figures in the early years before 9-11, and I really appreciated that because I hadn't really come across that. I'm, I'm no Afghanistan-Pakistan expert, but, you know, sort of just being in the field, I'd just never seen that before. And I, I liked the description, the sort of power play between the north and the south that you set up mm-hmm. between the United Front in the north with Ahmad Shah Massoud and, the Mullah, and, and Mullah Omar in the Pashtun south. Can you elaborate on that a little bit and sort of talk about how that tension started and how it sort of ended, if you could.
1: Yeah, I mean, because it it continues today and it... it, it Oh, it does continue today, okay. Yeah, well, I think so. And in that, you know, luckily we've got now a united government in Kabul, um, but it threatens to divide the country. And Afghanistan is an amazing country in that people, they're not separatists, but... But the divisions became aggravated under the Taliban, and it's ter- I think terribly damaging for the country, and and so that's partly why I felt so um, so alarmed by what I was seeing that the, the Taliban was resurging and the, the 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 divisions were being aggravated, and it was being aggravated by the neighbouring country. In fact, the two neighbouring countries, Iran also did its damage um, in the 90s, but actually was, I think, much more constructive in these years, ironically, when America was there. Um, But Pakistan um, aggravated the thing. So what happened was, you you had in the 90s a civil war, you had terrible, um, after the Russian invasion and after the departure of the the Soviet army, you had all these militias groups that had been fighting, the Mujahideen, who'd been fighting the Russians, and, and successfully saw them off. But they then, of course, with very little help from the outside world, turned in on each other. Um, and that was aggravated, I think, by the neighboring countries who all wanted to support their particular group. And and you see the danger of that now. You After a conflict like that, on that level, you have to have a great deal of international help to control things. And Support. So what happened was that the Taliban grew up out of that chaos. At first, they were supported by many people because they seemed to be God-fearing, straight, not corrupt, honorable types. And But very quickly, it turned into a southern group that was trying to dominate the country. And Pakistan aided and abetted them and encouraged them to conquer the rest of the country. And instead of making what we would call a unity government, they encouraged them to just conquer the North. And of course, the Northern groups, which had become powerful in their own right during the war, and had had their own fighting groups, fought back and resisted. Um, But there were some terrible massacres, there were terrible uh, atrocities, you know, as as the thing went to and fro. Um, and, And many people in the North really suffered from that. That was a terrible time um there was you know incredible hunger at one point it was a famine people were dying all over the place the taliban would sweep through and and send people fleeing to the mountains and killing and burning and um and they laid waste to fields and vineyards it was really really a a horrific time and then sometimes they would be pushed back so um that really aggravated the Pashtun South with from you know, between the divide between the Pashtun South and the northern groups, which were um, they're also Sunni, but uh, there are some Shia groups, um, but also they were just ethnic divisions. They were ethnic Tajiks, Uzbeks, Turkmens, um, so Farsi speaking as opposed to Pashtun. Now, Afghanistan has always had those divisions, but, it had never really become so damaging as during the Taliban time. And that legacy remains. Um, And so um, it was easy, I think, for the the Pakistanis to whip up that Pashtun solidarity um, after the American invasion and use it to try and say, you know, this government is illegitimate, they're American puppets. And so they... They used many of the Southerners, the Southern Pashtuns, and made them join the Taliban. Who encouraged them to saying that they were disadvantaged. And you know, it was an irony because Karzai was a Southern Pashtun president, and yet the Taliban managed to use, you know, turn people against him and and build up a, 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 an insurgency uh, against him partly because of the American presence. It was easy to say these are infidels, you know, they've come here to occupy the country. But partly also because Karzai had made this deal with the northerners to try and unify the country, and so they could use that saying, the northerners have been our enemies and so on. So that, that was heartbreaking to see, completely unnecessary. I think damaging for the whole region, for Pakistan as well, but that was the, the 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 message used, and so it, it did great damage, I think, um, to to Afghanistan. And you you're going to have those scars, I think, for a long time because you know Pashtun southerners um, died in the north, and and um, many northerners now in the army are dying in the south. So. Um, Yeah, very sad, and and I think unnecessary to have have brought it to this stage. I don't know if that answers your question, but...
0: It does, it does, which leads me to another question, and I thought a really important point that you, you covered in the book. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about, you, in answering that last question, talked about how Pakistan sort of supported the Pashtuns in creating this chaos. Can you talk a little bit about why the the reasons you thought this was happening? Why was Pakistan wanting an, an unstable Afghanistan?
1: I think where Pakistan is coming from first is to protect itself. It's a paranoically insecure young nation. You know, it only got independence sixty years ago. Um and it's always been concerned about its far greater rival and um perceived enemy to the south, India. And so Pakistan is paranoid about being encircled. And so Afghanistan, which is on its western border, it's always felt the need to dominate so it can have a sort of soft a soft and uh, what it calls it, it has a term for it, it calls it uh, strategic depth. But what it means is it's a sort of either a client state or a buffer state that is guarding its back. And preventing it from being encircled uh, by India, so its its obsession has been to control the strategic depth of India. So, so Pakistan's obsession has been to control Afghanistan in its own strategic interests. It thinks um, to to have this buffer state or to have this strategic depth of security bar on its you know western flank. And that made it look for proxy forces among the Afghans that could be controlled and supportive of Pakistan. And so it naturally looked to the Pashtuns who, who live along the border that, that is the Duran line, which creates the, the boundary between Pakistan and Afghanistan. And, and they have that. Pakistan has its own Pashtuns um, it, on, on its own side. So it was obvious to co-opt... The Pashtuns, along the tribes along the border, to be friendly. And so, when it saw the Taliban rise up, the Pakistan very quickly latched on to this force to co-opt them, uh, them. And I think they they just overreached themselves. They thought these these guys are great. They are. They they can be friendly to us. Um, they're the they're the right people to run the country. And of course, they weren't the right people because they were they. They were very fundamentalist and and, um, backward in their their outlook. That suited Pakistan, I think, because they thought they could control them better. But, of course, it meant that they weren't acceptable to the world, but also they weren't acceptable to many Afghans, especially in the north and in the centre. So the whole policy backfired, but that was Pakistan's driving aim. Now, other people will say, as you mentioned, that, they wanted to keep Afghanistan unstable. I think there's a bit of that, but it was more so that they could dominate them. They wanted to keep them in their place, under their thumb. More, more so they could dominate what is their poorer, less educated neighbor, after all, and less populous. You know, Pakistan is a much, much bigger country in, in terms of population. So it, it was more of a, a colonial attitude to their, their poorer smaller neighbor um, that they wanted to dominate and I think they don't want them to get powerful and they didn't like them to have powerful friends in in the form of NATO and America for the same reason because this was Pakistan's backyard and they wanted to control it and and that's why Pakistan objected so strongly to America's presence and the whole presence of NATO forces in in the country next door.
0: What do you think the effect of the Taliban and Al Qaeda presence has meant for, I guess, Pakistani culture and uh, Pakistani politics within Pakistan.
1: It's been incredibly damaging, and I think for anyone like me who's who's been visiting Pakistan for over twenty years, it's it's very very sad because uh, what what we've seen, and I mean, no one wants to dictate to a country how they should be, but what we've seen is this this steady um, radical uh, Islamization of Pakistani society, which, you know, after all, after the British Raj, you know, was very educated, very forward-looking, very open country, and it's become steadily more and more closed and more and more extreme. And, you know, anyone who knows Pakistan, it's an incredibly hospitable culture and, and an incredibly relaxed form of Islam, Um, you know, it's a mostly Muslim country, but they have Christians, they they had some Hindus, they're less and less nowadays. They even have Parsis, you know, who come originally from Iran. But those, the the tolerance of that sort of South Asian, very uh, relaxed attitude towards self and a person's religion has become less and less tolerant. And uh, more and more extreme in its Islamist um, thinking. And that, that's been incredibly sad to see because, of course, what's happened is that the culture has has been warped and the state adopted this attitude of supporting jihad and supporting the training and indoctrination of, of uh, jihadi fighters, including many from foreign countries who passed through Pakistani madrasas and that has just created this this unbelievable movement uh which is spreading across the whole region and spreading you know uh into the middle east or or you know coming back and forth from the middle east because of course some of it came from the middle east but now uh pakistan is actually an exporter of this as well um we we know a lot of pakistani fighters of or, or fighters trained in pakistan have now gone to syria to join To join ISIS, Um, Al-Qaeda, you know, in the end, made its headquarters in Pakistan, and Ayman al-Zawahiri, the head of Al-Qaeda, is still in Pakistan, and and I believe protected by people there. So, um, and he is still, you know, expounding this very damaging and very dangerous uh, worldview um, and and continuing to train people and and send them to war in different countries, which I think no country really should should host and should be part of because it comes back to haunt you and and that's what's happened in pakistan it's it's um it's brought war and terrorism right into their cities, right into their homes and I think probably the the hardest thing for me has been to interview families whose sons have been. Now we're hearing about it all over the world but in when I was doing it in Pakistan it, it was less well known but they were you know people's sons who were they thought were in madrasas getting a nice religious education to, to turn into probably mullahs and teachers were going off and fighting and then turning out to to be suicide bombers and never coming home. And the parents were absolutely amazed. They had no idea the type of radical teaching their children were getting. And um, they often didn't know where their boys were. And they, you know, the first thing they would know is someone were telling them, your son's Shahid, you know, martyred um, in Afghanistan. And These were Pakistani parents who didn't even know where their sons had been, had been for the last few months. So, so that was appalling to learn and to see the suffering um, and the fear of these families who were, just couldn't control this radical Islam that had invaded their communities. And um, that, was, that was one of the most shocking times,
0: the reporting in Pakistan, and, and it's still going on today. So I'm just wondering, of the decision-makers in Pakistan, the ISI sort of decision-makers or the generals or even the religious establishment, I guess in the beginning and now, what what percentage – I mean, I don't need you to give me numbers, maybe you could sort of describe – what percentage actually supported this interpretation of Islam, the Taliban interpretation? I mean, was it completely a political move on their part, or was it was there some was there something more? Yeah, I think it'd be hard
1: to say a percentage, but I think what was clear there was there was there was a level of state decision making in it. Um, So uh, right from the time of, of the war against the Russians, the ISI believed that this was the important way to go to train Mujahideen to fight what was then the Soviet threat. After the Soviets left, the Pakistani ISI continued that policy and decided to keep training and keep using proxy forces for their own foreign policy. And so they sent them to Kashmir to fight, to try and wrest part of Kashmir for Pakistani control. They sent. They continued to send them into Afghanistan to dominate that theatre of war. So they just fact, figured they I were good thought, soldiers.
0: Ideological yes. soldiers made good and soldiers. And they were what what the Americans call force
1: multipliers. When you have you have your standing army, which is there and costs a certain amount, and then you have many many reservists, if you will, who are these Mujahideen, these these men who who know how to do a, a, a an insurgent type of war, a different type of war, but are very good shock troops, extra troops, force multipliers, the Americans would call them, um, in case of any war. or But also to spread, it, it was clear it was part of a policy to spread Sunni radical Islamic power in the neighboring regions. And so... We learned, you know, I I actually met one of the trainers who had worked on the Pakistani military payroll uh, for 15 years, training fighters from not just Afghanistan and Kashmir, but also Pakistanis, but also Chechens, Central Asians, Bosnians. um, And he traveled to those places on the Pakistani military payroll. So there was, um, I think, you know, there was a policy led by some in the ISI, the Pakistani intelligence, and the Pakistani army, to spread the idea of radical Islam further afield, but also just to train up hordes and hordes of young men, so that one day they could be used in a theatre that was useful. And I think we're seeing the results now. Even then, in the in the 90s, I met Chinese. Uyghurs, they're Muslims from the western China. I I met them on a bus and they'd all been trained. They'd been studying in madrasas, then they'd got a military training in uh, jihadi camps in Pakistan. They'd done a quick stint in Afghanistan to experience the real war. And
0: then they were on their way home
1: to visit their families back in, in Xinjiang province, which is the far western Muslim area of China. Well, this is as early
0: as 1990 you say, right?
1: This York. was, I think it was 90, it was 91 or 92 that I met mm, these yeah. guys. Mm-hmm. You know, 15 years later, we're seeing the results of that. We're seeing more and more radical attacks in Xinjiang by, by young men who've been radicalized to an extreme level. And I'm not going to support China in its policies against the, the people of Xinjiang, but but this sort of radicalism, I recognize it, and I know where it's coming from, and it's come from Pakistani training camps. So it's, you know, the repercussions of this end up then with, with ISIS in Syria, which, you know, we're all flabbergasted by, but any of us reporters who've been watching this have seen it coming for years. So um, Pakistan has a lot to answer for
0: on that, on that level, and of course, Al-Qaeda, because,
1: you know, they've also been doing it.
0: So it's really interesting Because I remember when you were talking about the Uyghurs, you also said that they gave them Pakistani passports, and they were all proudly showing you the Pakistani passports, which I guess, so uh, having the backup force to fight for Pakistan, I suppose they could always contact those Uyghurs and say, "Come, come join us, come fight for us, and they would come. I I I guess what I'm missing is why would why would Pakistan I sort of see maintaining a force within Pakistan that could be manipulated to fighting in Kashmir or India, but I don't I don't I guess I'm I'm a I guess I'm not uh, I'm missing some information as far as why the dissemination of the ideology would be happening as far east as maybe. China or the Chechen region or
1: yeah i think i mean i think there are some more extreme than others so when you read if you read the book uh, the bear trap um, which is a fascinating sort of self-revelatory account by uh, a pakistani uh, major general i think as to how they how they fought the war against the russians so and how they trained the mujahideen um, and this was the time when obviously, the, the American CIA was in, in coordinating with uh, the Pakistani ISI to train the Mujahideen um, to fight the Russians. Um, but you also saw in that book the the desire of the Pakistanis to go one step further and to push into the Central Asian states of what was then the Soviet Union. And their feeling was then you're fighting a war so you you push into where it hurts your enemy. And so that was their aim. Um, but what was fascinating when, after the Russians left and the Soviet army withdrew from Afghanistan, Pakistan didn't stop. They kept doing things. And we, we few reporters, who and I used to go to Central Asia quite a bit because I was based in Moscow in the 1990s, we were aware that the preachers were coming in, and the radicalization of of the very you know very simple Muslims from central asia in those countries who they in living under communism they really didn't know what was what was coming and a lot of them fell for it a lot of them were very impressed with these foreign preachers and um and that was a that was a calculated aim of the pakistanis and and of course al qaeda and also the Muslim the, the various Muslim preaching parties, so um, it was it, it was all of them jumping on, onto that and I think that comes from this uh, general trend in which you've seen in Pakistan and I think it's driven a lot by the Gulf Arab states, especially Saudi Arabia in those days to, to create a Sunni bulwark against Shia Islam and that's where you really see the the support that comes into Pakistan, which is enormous from Saudi Arabia and and the various Gulf Arab states, and they they give all the money for all these madrasas and the spreading of Wahhabism, and um, it's a sort of an obsession. I think it's a result of having too much money, but also an obsession to counter the theocratic state that that uh, was in Iran and and. You know, you could say it comes from paranoia or it comes from aggression, aggressive hegemonic desire, whatever it is. That's what's fed this um, this spread of of radical Wahhabism.
0: So in the book, you talk about how the U.S. military commits cultural blunders during the period that you were there. And could you tell us some examples of those? I enjoyed reading those because I always wondered how situations, how I I could, I I just, it, it was very difficult for me to imagine untrained, culturally untrained soldiers sort of amongst everyday Afghans. I always wondered what <laughs> what the result would be, so I, I enjoyed reading those parts. Could you give us some examples of those?
1: Well, I don't know. The, my first reaction is, oh, the you know all the awfully sad things that happen. You know, the horror of some of these elders uh, who got arrested early in the in the early stages, and um, you know.
0: Was... I guess I should I should I should so I'm I'm dividing this question into two. Okay, I'm sort of talking about. Um, the issue that you bring up of proportionality and also at the same time c- cultural blunders. Yeah, I mean address those together, separately, whichever way you, you think is is best.
1: I'm trying to think of what what cultural blunders that um
0: You you for instance you talked uh, about sort of the, the female space, the sort of interior and the and and how soldiers would uh, not a lot of goodwill was generated by being insensitive to uh, the space that females sort of were supposed to have to themselves. And
1: yeah, I mean, I think I I don't know what training the Americans were given very early on, but it was very you're very it's you learn it very quickly when you go to Afghanistan. But um, people guard their women very strictly, especially in the rural conservative areas. The women always stay inside. They're always veiled in front of strange, especially strange men. As a woman, of course, you're very lucky because you can go in, you get invited inside the house, and then you see you know, the, the, the women's quarters, and then there's always a guest room or a separate space where the men will receive outsiders or male guests who, who aren't allowed into the inner sanctum. And I mean, we've all read about, you know, in historical times of harems and protected uh, societies, and this is Afghanistan's really like that. And also, um, a man's house is his castle, and and that's an that's an English expression. We know what that means, um, but really in Afghanistan, it, it, it's really serious. You you never go into somebody's house uninvited. So you knock at the door. And if you go with Afghans, and of course, I always traveled with a driver, a, a translator, a local reporter, photographer often, and, and you would see the Afghans would always, you know, cough or knock at the door and wait. They would never go into someone's house until the male or or sometimes it was a child comes to the gate and, and then opens up. And um, and, of course, Americans, you know, they were soldiers, they were taught to raid places, but they never understood, I never saw them really understanding that, to to take care of the, the sensibilities. And I think, you know, they felt, we're here to look for terrorists, so we, um, we can't be waiting for, on people, because they'll run out the back door, but for the Afghans, of course... It, it really incensed them and the anger built over the years and got more and more. And you could see that in President Karzai. He just, he just used to get so emotional by the end and so angry that he was repeating, you know, seven, eight, nine years later, the same thing. Don't raid people's houses. Don't go into, um, uh, find a, you know, there should have been a better way of, of working with, Local forces to, to 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 find the bad guys, but not rile the entire community. And um, it took a very long time for the Americans to get that right. I, you know, I'm not saying that everyone was tone deaf to the culture, because there were some clever people, and there were some some very impressive special forces, often who understood things, um, who quickly learnt to work with local forces, but. By and large, there were some really uh, terrible mistakes made. And I'm sure I made mistakes, too. But, you know, when you're an invading army, you're just asking to turn, you know, you turn the whole population against you with some of those very straightforward um, cultural mess-ups. Uh, so that that was, you know, sometimes funny, but usually infuriating to see. Uh, and then, of course... You, 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 you saw it, it actually being very, very damaging. Where people warned us, especially elders who'd been, I remember meeting elders who'd been imprisoned and humiliated by American searches. Afghans are very sensitive about nakedness, for example, and, um, and being demeaned in front of others, um, especially, for example, they would have a father and son and hold them together and... Um, that was always very painful for younger men to see their father um, humiliated or stripped naked in front of them. So that I think sometimes was probably done on purpose to put pressure on an inter- during interrogation. But it made it made it caused terrible damage to to the, the support of the people. Um, and um, that I saw, I I was. Learning that early on, um, and I was hearing that in interviews in the very first years and months and that again was was mystifying that there wasn't just a, a
0: quicker change in the attitude of the- so you think that the same results would have been gotten if if these sort of these sensitivities had come about. You don't think it would have impeded the U.S. military's ability to actually do what they to do what they were supposed to what no, they were because, there to because, do? Because
1: no, I think I mean I think they it, they should have learned quicker and they should have changed quicker. And I think what made it very clear to me was when um, General Petraeus came and, and Stanley McChrystal came with their counterinsurgency. Some people call it a strategy or a, or a plan. They got it. They understood how you you defeat an insurgency, which is not with an invading army, foreign army, and not overwhelming force, which had been the policy for, or with counterterrorism raids. It's actually by um, it, it's 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 a by a, using a whole what they call a holistic approach of every everything. You use force, you use fighting, you use intelligence, but you also use the community, and you use, above all, local forces. Um, and so, you know, Petraeus absolutely mobilized, like he did in Iraq, a, a massive increase of the Afghan army and security forces and police. And then he also engaged a lot of the local villagers and, and mobilized them in um, self-protection forces, or as they were called, they were actually called local police in the end, and they came... You know, under official arm of the interior ministry, but you then when you get everybody with a stake in the play, that it changes the whole the whole thing, and so that it's that what changed things. But that came in two thousand and nine, but actually only enforced till in two thousand and ten, so nine years after the original American intervention. So, and they they even knew it because the very first few months of the intervention was using. You know, Afghan forces on the ground, um, and they should have built on that. And instead, yeah, you know, they, they they went into a t- completely different type of conflict, which was uh, uh, you know, which was incredibly damaging and um, and and backfired significantly. So, so I think they did learn and they did change their ways, uh, but way way too late when the Taliban had, was already a, a, a much much bigger force, um, and and you know had free movement in virtually half the country so um, then of course it became a huge fight um, on a par with you know the fight in in Iraq um, and and that that was also made you mad because um, they should have seen understood it earlier and and changed earlier um, and of course the problem was that they were so busy in Iraq that The best minds and forces and attention was all there, rather than in Afghanistan.
0: Right. So the person of Hamid Karzai keeps coming up. And one of the things that I enjoyed um, about your book was how cutting it was, how candid it was in its criticism of Pakistan, but at the same time how, how compassionate it was with you know certain american military figures most certainly with the the afghan population but, but what was really interesting to me was your description of Hamid Karzai and you know you i'm i'm sure you know this folks in the middle east as soon as you sort of have the CIA going out into the field and finding somebody and bringing them and sort right. of in installing them that's even what it's called right installing them in that position uh, i mean i know he was he was elected and all that but you you immediately sort of look at that person with suspicion and call them a puppet a u.s puppet so it was really interesting to me uh, how you described karzai could you could you talk a little bit about him and what you what you found what sort of person you found him to be
1: yeah because he is actually a fascinating guy and um I think you know got got quite maligned in the end because the when the war went bad uh, it was very easy to criticize him and and lay the blame on him a lot but I found um you know he, he's he's by no means perfect but he's he's quite likable and engaging he's also infuriating but I think I I started to understand where he was coming from you know because I, I in the early days especially i saw him a lot and interviewed him a lot and i i think he was right on he's he's an excellent politician um you learn that very quickly and he really understands his people which is what i liked and i recognized very quickly you know even though he was living in that palace under american guards and you know really uh, unable to travel around a lot he did have his pulse on the afghan on the, the pulse of the people, and and so um, when he talked about the civilian casualties, the the, the, the mistakes the Americans were ma- making, that was sincere and that was he was correct. And he was always, I think, pressured to stop criticizing, you know, the American actions and to show support, and that cost him a lot politically. And then I started to see he, you know, he. started to realize that and he started to get really angry because however much he talked about the main issues which were, go to the source of the problem, you know, it's in Pakistan stop killing Afghans stop abusing Afghans you're turning the people against you
0: So he he knew from the beginning he knew from the beginning the source was Pakistan. Yeah,
1: yeah, and he, he said it from the beginning and that sometimes he was told, look, stop talking about it we'll deal with Pakistan you just, you know um, and, and, you know, General Musharraf, on, on the other side, in Pakistan, was very clever at complaining, this is not constructive, this sort of thing. Karzai, you know, he, he would literally tell the Americans to, to tell Karzai to shut up. And they did often. And so eventually Karzai got fed up. And it got so bad that by the end, he he,
0: he didn't trust the Americans were on his side. Um, and of course, do you think the Americans didn't really know what was going on, didn't know which one of the, of the sides to trust? I
1: think they knew. I think they knew. Um, I think I, I try and show that for a long time, they didn't really they didn't really focus on the problem. But they they'd been told by Karzai and his his cabinet and, and so on and his officials for many years I think they only really started to put the spotlight on Musharraf and his ISI and to see what they were up to only by two thousand six, two thousand seven. So that was partly the Bush administration's failure to really look closely at what of course was an ally and a major non NATO ally, um, in the war on terror. So that was a failing. But I think people, for example in the CIA, they knew. But they had they had a different calculation. Their point was Above all, we need Pakistan's cooperation on the nuclear issue, because Pakistan is a nuclear power. And above all, we want cooperation on finding the top top um, al-Qaeda people. And so they didn't really mind that the Taliban were restive in southern Afghanistan. And I think that was a major miscalculation on, on the side of the Pakistan, of the, uh, sorry, the American intelligence and military because we could see this is going to grow and grow and grow um, and of course it did And it then became it came to actually threaten the entire american mission in afghanistan so um so i think some of them saw it um, but i think the politicians didn't pay enough attention and then of course Obama comes in and he he uses it as an election issue the, the real war is in Afghanistan and the Pakistan. He, you know, he goes to town on Pakistan. Is the, the, the place where we was targeted and all the fighters there and and so on. And then of course he gets into power and actually doesn't go the whole way. He just concentrates on pulling out. And okay, he gets Bin Laden, which obviously was a, a huge coup, but he doesn't get the rest of it. And he's now pulling out. The troops with really the problem unsolved and um, and Afghanistan not able to fight it um, on its own and so so it's really it's it's a decade and more of of American failure to understand the depth of the seriousness of the problem and really getting to grips and that's because the political will ebbed you know at the beginning obviously after 9-11 it was huge political will to go into Afghanistan uh, but when the, when the war became went wrong and it got too long um, the desire was to get out and just leave it um, and and it's unfinished and that's that's a real tragedy for the Afghans because you go in you know you mess everything up you put a lot of people you persuade a lot of people to put their lives on the line mm. to work with you and to try and fight it And then you pull out before it's over. You know, it's a a real repeat of Vietnam, really. You're you're leaving a lot of people in the lurch. Um, And so that's what made Karzai so angry. Um, He felt betrayed by the end. You know, he also, of course, you know, faked the election and then got furious when it was exposed. Um, But he felt also very undermined in that by the Americans because he felt they were trying to replace him and being underhand about it. So that I mean that, that personal slight, um, I think, made him really, really bitter and angry. And, and a Pashtun, an Afghan, you know, will never forget the slight. So that really, really was damaging. But in the end, I think he could not, he was really hurt by, he could not accept that the, the civilian cost that the Afghans bore and the failure of the Americans actually to go to the heart of the problem, which was in Pakistan. And, it, you know, in Pakistan's state policy, it wasn't just that they had, a, you know, an uncontrollable problem in their tribal areas. It was because the state was pursuing that policy, and that hurt him bitterly because in the end he realized that for the Americans, the Afghans were less important than the Pakistanis, a little Pakistani relationship, and that I think he really didn't forgive, and so I tried to show that, because in the end, towards the end of his time, I think a lot of the reporting on Karzai was, oh, he's off on his rock, you know, ranting again, and he's saying extravagant things, and I had to show what was behind, what was in the man behind, and he's certainly not perfect, but I think he, he had right on his side a lot
0: of the time. In the book, there's a part where you say, I'm quoting, the American bombing of Afghanistan in 2001 had meanwhile lit a fuse in Pakistan's border regions, and they erupted in a volatile mix of militancy, religious fervor, and tribal solidarity. And then a little later you say, quote, they were angered at the intervention. So reading this, I immediately... It just made me think of the intervention that's taking place in Syria and Iraq today, mm. and you know the charge that that responding with uh, to violence with more violence can only create even more extremism. What would you say to such an assessment?
1: It, it's really really difficult, and I've you know I've covered a lot of wars, and I've seen both. I've actually seen both happen because um, yes, I I definitely. So I think it I think it's very difficult because definitely the bombing of Afghanistan after 9/11, um, which as you know most of the world believed, you know, America had had a terrible affront and and was allowed to seek redress, angered many many Pakistanis and Afghans. Um, of course, a lot of Afghans were relieved the Taliban was being targeted, and they were actually thrilled when they saw how accurate some of the bombing was. Um, but there's no doubt about it, civilians suffered. Uh, in Pakistan, I think, it was, they were so used to the solidarity of the Mujahideen against the Russians, that they just it just was like a continuation of that. And I think a lot of them were not well-educated. A lot of the religious parties whipped it up. It was spontaneous, but it was then used. So when you see that, you see how people are used. Um, what is the solution? It, you mustn't play into the hands of the radicals um, and and allow that. So of course, bombing any country, you're gonna you're gonna upset people um, and you're gonna turn a lot of the people against you. Um, but always at the back of my mind is also. Um, the war in Kosovo, which I also covered for the New York Times. I lived in Serbia. I was actually, my, I was the, the, the Balkans reporter, but I lived in Belgrade. And so when the, the war in Kosovo happened, and part of that war, I was in Belgrade under the bomb, under NATO bombing, and I would have to go with the sort of Serbian Information Ministry trip to go and see the bombing. And, and the results of the bombing, and they would always point out the civilian casualties and so on. Uh, but what was fascinating was was actually in a in a what it was a, a sort of a, a soft but a, very definitely a dictatorship by Milosevic. Was um, you saw a mixture. You saw a rallying uh, against the people who were bombing us and the people the solidarity behind Milosevic, even though a lot of people didn't like him. They kind of rallied around during the bombing. But it also made them particularly angry against Milosevic. And so when I had I had a very good Serbian reporter who could, when we went on these government trips, I would sort of go with the minder and see the damage. And my Serbian reporter would slope off and talk to people. And he would find them, you know, a bit away from the crowd, he would find them cursing and swearing Milosevic. And um, sure enough, a year after that war, the people did rise up and overthrew, overthrow the dictator. And so my point is that you might see an immediate rallying of support against the bombardment, but it also, um, it, it, it can... Undermine the dictator or the regime that you're fighting against because people get angry that we've been brought to this It's a very fine balance and I think you have to think very hard before you intervene um, In any place because every war I've seen has been appalling civilians always suffer however Brilliant your weapons are and however targeted you say your strikes are and so I think we need to be there as reporters to show the cost, the high cost, to show people you can't do, you know, surgical strikes. There's no such thing. But at the same time, I do, really, I do see that there are some regimes that are so, so harmful to their own people um, that they, some way we have to find in the world to stop them or to alleviate and so <clears throat> I'm one of the people who says the drone strikes in Pakistan have been remarkably effective. And I think um, Pakistan has been able to whip up the, the anger against those if, if they are well done. And if, as we've seen more lately, they've been more careful about, more specific about their targeting and more careful about only doing them away from civilian areas and so on. They they can they do have a place and they can be effective. So I think it's it's I've always found it a difficult line, but I have um, I have seen that the drone strikes in Pakistan's tribal areas, um, contrary to a lot of the press um, reports that they're killing civilians, that they're whipping up um, anger. I found that actually um, when you when you manage to reach the tribespeople in the area, a lot of people support them because, especially latterly, they have managed to 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 be more specific to only target the particular car as it after it's left a civilian area, and so they've been remarkably accurate and effective. And in a in a place where Pakistanis weren't gonna. Um, do ground operations, the Americans absolutely politically could not feel felt they could not invade Pakistan. I think there is a place for some you know, strikes like those drone strikes. Um and I think they have been effective in disrupting Al Qaeda and, and the camps and so on. But I think you I think we we have to be terribly careful because I've I've really never seen any bombing campaign that hasn't hurt civilians. So I think however brilliant your weaponry are, is, you, you're always going to hurt people. Um, and so you have to be, be terribly cautious, I think, about airstrikes. But but at the same time, I do feel, you know, if, if they'd moved earlier, uh, you know, early intervention is another thing that I would say it often can save lives. Um, and my feeling is earlier movement against... Uh, The Taliban, or earlier dealing with the Taliban before they had this resurgence, was of course the much, much more sane and sensible cause. To leave it so late so that it becomes such an enormous problem, you could argue the same with Syria, is as damaging, um, you know, and and appeasement perhaps of um, this very dangerous radical islamic jihadism is, is it ha, has been incredibly dangerous because it's it's spread and and more and more and allowing some someone like pakistan with its saudi backers to to you know engage in 20 years of this is is now what we're we're reaping the rewards of and so blind being blind to that and not acting on that is has been incredibly damaging for the whole world now we see
0: Your book came out in April of 2014, and I'm I'm just wondering what the the Pakistani response has been to the (laughs) revelations that you make.
1: Actually, better than I don't know what I was expecting. Um, It's the the Pakistani reaction was amazing, actually, when it first came out, and and, as in India as well, Um, huge. Huge reaction um, because you know, I had us it, it serialized in the New York Times magazine, especially the Pakistani elements. So it was on every talk show that week, of course, mostly criticism, but it was talked about, so it was out there. And then, of course, um, there's, a, a, there's a mag there's a newspaper there that runs, has a partnership agreement with the New York Times, so they were supposed to run. The magazine piece in a big front page weekend edition, and and they lost their nerve. Um, Those editors were under extreme pressure, so they instead and they couldn't change it or insert something else, so they just ran a huge blank white piece of white space on the front page. So that was you know that was again talked about, Um, and that was you know a sign that this this was dynamite that the editors were too scared really to have a. A very critical piece on the ISI. Then it, it then it dropped away. Perhaps it was still talked about in places, but then a, then there was another resurgence. And I saw columnists start to talk about it, and people started to review it. And then it was pictured on the front page of uh, the Sunday magazine of Dawn newspaper some months later, along with another book, um, a colleague Abu Sadiq's on um, the Pashtuns, and. And that was also great to see, because just to have the cover out there. Um, and the other great thing about Pakistan is, although I I can't go there anymore, I know I, I don't even apply for a visa, <laughs> but I won't get a visa. Mm-hmm. And I know they're extremely angry with me, and probably there might be people who'd want to do me harm. At the same time, the book is in the bookshops. So, you know, Pakistan... Really? Yeah, the the media don't dare touch certain topics and um the talk shows that did talk about it uh, often denigrated it you know they, they they talked about it but they poo-pooed a lot of the, the especially the anti-pakistan stuff um but it, it, it's also you know not a total censorship and so in the bookshops it's been there so so by and large um yeah, not too bad. Um, no, no Pakistani publisher is asked to, to publish it um, That's a long way off. So, um, you know, um, the good and good and the bad. But I, I really felt I had to write it for future generations, if not for immediate. Um, people need to know, and I and I have had you know a nice reaction from Pakistani journalists who who dare to say so. So, so I think it was worth worthwhile, and I think. Um,
0: down the road, you know, people will study it, which is good. What about the U.S. reaction to the book?
1: That was also, you know, quite gratifying because it, it made quite a fuss with the, the main, you know, claim that that the Pakistanis knew that bin Laden was hiding in Abbottabad in a house and that the ISI had actually placed him there and had a man in charge. That was, that was a new claim and, of course, caused quite a stir. Um, and I think um, what is quite gratifying is that you know after the the original sort of fuss and and the, you know I did a couple of weeks going around and talking um, since I think I got a lot of reviews but since I think the it, it, you can see that people have actually read the whole book because that was just the Pakistani element and. Now, in the months since, I realise, you know, that a lot, a lot of the other arguments which were left out in that in that first book tour, um, you know, the issues we've talked about of the proportionality of the American fight, um, the, the the failure to understand the problem um, for so many years, even the, the handling of Karzai, that I think that's sinking in because I see it referred to in places. I see um, people. Coming back to those issues, so that's that's gratifying because, you know, all, all an author wants to do is open a debate or put some ideas out there, um, and um, and then of course the other the other thing that is close to my heart is to examine the situation of journalists in Pakistan, um, which is partly why I start with the getting beaten up and how to try and point out how difficult it is to report on these issues for Pakistani journalists um and that has got a lot of notice as well so that that's really important because that's you know a a very very tough issue for uh working journalists in Pakistan and and we need to keep keep battering away on that
0: Carlotta Gall we've taken so much of your time thank you for giving it to us and is there is there something that we left out that you'd like to add before we have to say goodbye
1: um, I think you've covered pretty well everything, haven't you? I mean I think just that <laughs> that last point um about the, the, the Pakistani journalists. Um, I really believe if they hadn't been intimidated and controlled in the way they are, and it took me a long time to quite understand how much the ISI um manipulates and controls the media and individual journalists. And I think if they hadn't if that hadn't been the case, you know, they're well capable of finding Bin Laden, and finding Mullah Omar who's still there, you know, and and Zawahiri, who I always hoped to find myself. but um, I think, you know, the Pakistani journalists are well capable of it, but they're intimidated, they're threatened, some of them have been killed trying to work, and some a lot of them have had to leave the country. And I think that, um, I really I'm glad that in my introduction I, I exposed that and showed quite how bad it is, because um, they don't deserve that. Um, and, you know, the, the, I think the policy is redundant of, of supporting and hiding Al-Qaeda and, and the Pakistani journalists shouldn't suffer for that. So, so that actually, I'm very proud that I managed to get that in. Often as a, as a reporter, you, you don't reveal how we work and, and the dangers we go on. But, but I'm now glad that I did that because I think, um, it's a very important issue that needed to
0: Thank you for your time Thanks and all lot. that you do. <laughs>
1: Thank you for having me. Thanks for talking. All right. Bye bye. Okay. Bye.